0: Hello people of the world and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today I got to interview an incredible person. Her name's Erica Smith and my gosh, I had so much fun, I felt like I wanted to just break out a couple tubs of ice cream and have a whole party over here with hats and everything. Erica was the best, she is a sex educator, her expertise involved purity culture recovery, LGBTQ plus inclusive sex ed, adolescent sexuality, justice involved youth, all sorts of things. She offers individual sessions, education and coaching programs, webinars, consulting, support groups, speaking and training. This woman does it all. And my God, I learned so much in our conversation. I've actually wanted to have someone on here for a while to talk about this kind of stuff because it's just sex education, especially now. I mean, always, but just given the current climate of what's happening in the world. I think it's really important that we have as much knowledge about our bodies as we possibly can. So I am so happy to have found somebody like Erica to come and share her wisdom and I just can't wait to have even more voices with different perspectives and ideas about the same topic. We talked about that. We talked about her story growing up uh, as a riot girl, which I thought was absolutely incredible. We talked about feminism. We talked about... Oh man, just a lot. I think you better just listen and I'll stop rambling right now because Erica has so many important things to say. But anyway, I love you guys and I hope that you enjoy. Uh, how is it going over
1: there in Philadelphia? It is going okay. Um, it's about ninety-five degrees
0: today, so I am trying to stay cool. <laughs> oh my gosh! I think it's about the same over here. I'm in St. Louis, and so oh yeah, okay. Yeah, it's hot. The dogs you get cannot... the hot humidity too. Yeah, for sure. The dogs cannot be outside for very long today. <laughs> they did not no. like it. I walked mine at like eight a.m., and even
1: then, it was it was pushing it.
0: Oh wow. I haven't been to Philly. I was in Philly a while ago. It's very, very cool. I went to a coffee shop. I don't remember the name, but you guys have cool coffee shops. We do. We have lots. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Well, Erica, thank you so much for wanting to do this interview with me. Uh, Do do you mind giving our listeners just a quick little tidbit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So.
1: Uh, My name is Erica Smith and I am a sex educator and I've been working as a sex educator since I was in college and now I'm in my early 40s. So I've been doing this work for over 20 years and at this point I focus on helping people work through all of the baggage from growing up in purity culture and giving giving them the sex education that they did not receive as young people. And that means sex education that is comprehensive and accurate and shame-free and queer inclusive.
0: Wow. That is so cool. So, so cool. I just, that brings up so much for me and I'm assuming every single person who's listening to this interview I just the work you do is so important so I was really really excited to get to have you on and hear your story and get to ask you some questions and just get some more sex ed out there to whoever is listening to this.
1: I'm very glad to assist and have your podcast be the vehicle for that.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, do you want to describe the relationship that you have with your body?
1: Yeah. Um, That I have currently? Yeah. Currently
0: with your body. Okay.
1: The current relationship I have with my body is one that has been, I think, a long time coming. Uh, It's one that I find that, and I've talked to other women who are my age and older, but the older that I get, the less critical I am of my own body, um, the more I am just like, this is what you're going to get. And (laughs) I'm aging as we all are. And Mm -hmm. I also know that like certain things are just changing, um, changes happening to your body that include like gravity and stretch marks and cellulite where you didn't have it before and wrinkles and things like that. And it's, there's something really liberating about being like, yeah, this is just my body right now. And to make it try to conform to a societal standard of beauty would take so much effort that I don't want to put into it um, that I don't have for it. So I would say my relationship right now is that it, I I really appreciate all of the functions that my body can do. I'm very um, active. I love to walk a lot and hike and, you know, move around. And that's, that's how I feel about my body. And it's, it's really cool. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's kind of much, much less stressful um, than when I was younger and very focused on uh, weight in particular.
0: Mm, okay, that's so that's so cool that you mentioned all this. I was just thinking how I wanted to have someone on the podcast that talked about aging in that kind of way, because there's just so much noise and pressure on women, and particularly when it comes to aging, which we all know all about. And I think Mm -hmm. it's really cool that you have that mindset on it. Really, really awesome. Because it's true. I can imagine, or I can only imagine how liberating that would feel to just be like, okay, well, this is me. Let's do it.
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, I, it's weird. I just found myself the other day being like, oh, my arms, like, my upper arms are a little flappy. And I'm like, "Or right, whatever. Like, <laughs> you know, like, going. they're not going to get unflappy. There's no, that's not going to happen unless I have some kind of surgery. So it's just like, I don't know. I love... There's, there's something about getting older that is just very liberating in that regard and looking at the bodies of other women who are aging and realizing like, there's no shame in it. It's just the way our body is. And it is, it is difficult though. Um, I feel like I struggle more with my face, wanting to make my face look as young as possible and like doing all this skincare and sun protection. And I think that, Um, Instagram beauty standards and the amount of plastic surgery and fillers that are just normalized in people now Mm -hmm. definitely contribute to some of the like some of the insecurities that I get about getting older and just regarding the face like that's a different story than the body
0: yeah oh absolutely absolutely I I just like I don't know the more I learn or when I started to learn about like diet culture, and then I started to learn about uh, the patriarchy, white supremacy, like in the past like five or six years, kind of piecing it all together and now learning mm-hmm. about just the pressures of women looking a certain way age wise and yeah. all the money that goes into that and all the money that is clearly to be made for the people who do that. Yeah it all is just like, it feels like it's all under the same umbrella of just trying to control us. For sure, it is. And one of the
1: things that I find particularly helpful is I follow a lot of Instagram accounts that highlight the plastic surgery that celebrities have had because it's like every freaking famous person, even if you wouldn't think it, has probably had a nose job. Like if you look at before and afters of even like young people and people that you would imagine had... kind of nose that met european beauty standards like they still got skinnier noses like it's when you see it and when you pay attention it's like holy crap we are really trying to look like something that doesn't exist without surgery and Mm. it's it's mind it's mind-blowing to me
0: yeah for sure, I need to follow some of those accounts. That's oh nice. yeah, I can recommend them. <laughs> for sure, send me send me some. I'll put some in the the info box for myself. you sure. ever wants them because that that's the kind of content we need to spread oh, around. Oh yeah,
1: seriously, I'm always like my um explore page on Instagram now is just like before and after celebrity oh surgery pictures.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Mine's like hundred percent golden retrievers. Oh, my <laughs> so a lot of my some... dogs. Are the other half of mine? <laughs> uh, that sounds like a good discover page. I like it. Pretty, it. pretty much. <laughs> oh man! So, so you mentioned you mentioned a second ago about how uh, it used to be your relationship with your body used to revolve a little bit more around the uh, subject of weight. Mm-hmm. What did that kind of look like throughout your life? That was
1: never easy. I mean, I. I was a teenager in the nineties, you know, like 1995 is when I turned 16 years old. And that is the peak of skinny, skinny, skinny beauty standards. So at the time we called it heroin chic, um, I
0: don't know if you've ever heard that term, but... I haven't, actually.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty alarming. But the, the term for it was heroin chic. And it was the referring to the thinness of models at the time. And there were certain people, um, certain famous people that kind of really upheld that standard. One of them was Kate Moss. And the other was Callista Flockhart, who's the actress that played Allie McBeal on TV. And they were both just rail thin. And mm-hmm. so it was hard to be a teenage girl when the beauty standard was rail thin. And there are oftentimes now, like I don't think beauty standards are good for any of us, but sometimes I see the way that people with average bodies and larger bodies are just so much more visible now than they were when I was a teenager. And I'll think like, what if Lizzo and Megan The Stallion had been around when I was a teenager? Just like, having the bodies they have being celebrated. I feel like it would have been a lot different. Um, but I, for me, it made me, you know, I I started making myself go on a diet when I was 11. It's probably a familiar story, you know, just worried about how much food I was eating, how much I was exercising. I was definitely, um, you know, trying to trying to really restrict my food when I was in high school. That led to some, bulimia which for me I it was light you know I never had to go to like a, a facility or a treatment or anything like that but it was something I struggled with in my mm-hmm. teens and into my early 20s and then I had to work very consciously to to heal from that and change my relationship to food in my body and I have come to the conclusion that I don't think that healed is a, is a place for me that looks a certain way I think it's always going to be something that I'm just like kind of mindful of like yeah I don't know it's I I know that I feel so different than I did when I was a teen and in my early 20s when all I did was I mean the amount of hatred I had for my body is is ridiculous and I look at photos of myself from then and I'm like what the, what were you thinking? Like, you you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the body I had at the time, it, it, when you look at it, it wasn't even, you know, not that anyone should feel shame for their body size, but I wasn't even a size that like, you know, would merit the, the kind of focus or commentary, um, that I seem to think it did. And mm-hmm. that's, that's always, Weird. And I've I've caught myself lately being like, you know, when you look in the mirror at your face, like 20 years from now, you're going to be like, oh, my face when I was in my 40s was so
0: good. (laughs) You
1: know what I mean? Yeah. All that perspective.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I like it's interesting because. I mean, I used to say how we're like always progressing, but then the recent stuff that's been going on as far Mm. as like all the things that I probably don't even need to mention yet uh makes me double think that but when it comes to like bodies and beauty standards and whatnot I think that um it's very interesting how right now is the time that more body sizes are being represented at like models or uh, models for, like, clothing or mm-hmm. just ads or anything like that that I almost, I feel like I can't really remember before that was a thing. And that's really, really sad to to remember. I, like, yeah. watch like TV shows and movies from, like, the 90s or, like, 13 going on 30. And just the models in that show alone. Or, like, The Devil Wears Prada. Mm-hmm. And I hear the way that they talk and it was so normalized. So oh, normalized. Yeah. like everybody had some kind of an eating disorder.
1: So like, normalized because any, any time there was a character that was even remotely out of this very skinny ideal, that was the fat friend. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like the desexualized, like no one, this, this person doesn't get a storyline about love. This person gets they're like the sidekick and there's yeah, probably the a funny be, one. Yeah, there's going to be jokes made about them. Um, I was watching, there's a TV show called um, Single Drunk Female. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a very good show. But it's it's about a young woman who's in recovery from alcohol addiction. And one of her best friends is this, like, plus-sized girl who, the fact that she's fat isn't anything to do with the plot. She has this awesome love life. She's super into sex, like, And I was like, God, to see someone like that on TV when I was young would have been, it would have been, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the impact would have been, but I imagine that that would have been really important to me.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cause that's where we get, I mean, that's a big part of where we get that idea anyway of like, you have to be, you have to look this way or be this thin. And so if that wasn't even a thing on TV, if it was just all bodies were celebrated. I wonder what it would look like. Yeah. Very good question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I want to go watch single drunk female. <laughs> what oh, what it's is it? On cute. Um, I,
1: I watched it on Hulu. It's a show from the Freeform channel. Okay. Um, but it's on Hulu and it's very clever. Um, it's like a dark comedy. Lots of, lots of like queerness on it. There are trans okay. characters. It's,
0: it's a great show. That's amazing. I love any show that has anything to do with queerness. I'm oh, yeah, there's lots it. of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Now I have so many questions regarding TV shows for you, but yeah. we're not going to get into that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll talk later. Sure. Um, but anyway, so, so tell me more about what it was like kind of growing up as far as uh, your life with, like, your family and whatnot. I know that I read that your family was very um, kind of – there was no shame or secrecy when it came to sex and talk about sex and whatnot. Did it feel the same way with like your body and just knowing what everything was, how everything worked? Like, what did that look like? Yeah. So
1: I grew up um, in like a blue collar working class family in a rural place. And so, yeah, when my parents were cool and open about things, it wasn't because you know they had probably thought deeply about how to have a parenting philosophy that was open about sex it's just like that's how they were and that's how at least my mom's side of her family was like just just people that talk about everything people that aren't weird about things and when i say weird about things i know that's vague but i can remember um you know there was comfort with nudity in my home And my mom is one of five sisters so that all of I would spend tons of time as a kid around all of my aunts and they talked candidly about things like periods and bodies and, you know, they had a lot of euphemisms for sex, but I knew what they were talking about. Um. You know, they weren't talking like explicitly about sex in ways that are inappropriate, but I knew what their jokes were, you know, even yeah. when they were talking to each other as a kid. And I also was like allowed to watch the soap operas that my mom and grandma were watching. When I was young, I started reading the romance novels my mom and grandma were reading. Um, it was also an open secret that my grandfather had Playboy magazines and they were <laughs> quote-unquote hidden <laughs> oh that's amazing but every single right every single grandchild knew where the playboys were like we all knew where the playboys were and he, like he he was he was a subscriber um and so anytime if he was out of the room or if you were home alone at grandma's you knew just lift up the cushion of the um recliner he sat in to find the playboys and it was like (laughs) there was no shame about that Mm -hmm. no one was like oh my god I can't believe he reads those or I can't believe the you know grandchildren like know we joke about it like yeah there was just nothing nothing that ever made me feel like sex was bad or that um bodies being involved in sex was bad like I did Mm -hmm. not get that kind of messaging and we were just very, I think other people would consider us maybe, I don't know, uncouth or unrefined or crass, but that's just the family I grew up in and I'm really grateful for it.
0: Oh my gosh, that, that is seriously so cool yeah. to hear such, a, such an incredible way to grow up and to not have shame over these topics. only the best you know what I mean so tell me what got you interested in feminism and like was that something that was just around you growing up or was that something you came to discover for yourself
1: I was I always knew that I was a feminist from a very young age this was just again nothing that anybody taught me but it was just like I picked up on the attitudes of the women around me I guess who were just kind of very no nonsense, very strong. And at a young age, I, I was able to like start to identify things that I felt were were unequal and unfair. So I was an outspoken feminist in high school. And when it came time to think about what I wanted to do in college, I was like, I don't know, I just know I want to help people. Mm-hmm. And I'm also I'm very much um, in in support of feminism. So I decided to major in women's studies. And while I was majoring in women's studies, the classes that I loved the most had to do with sexuality and bodies. Mm -hmm. So in particular, there was a class that was women's studies, biobehavioral health and nursing. And it was cross listed in all three of those um, departments. And so we learned all kinds of things about birth control and the history of it and the kind of unfair experimentations that were done on bodies. I remember we bought menstrual cups together as a class. And that was like, it was back in the late nineties. Like menstrual cups were hard to find. Like they were like, people thought we were the biggest weirdos for having (laughs) menstrual cups. Um, Yeah. So it was, it was really cool. And it was doing that kind of work and thinking about sexuality in the context of like culture and society and race and gender and all that stuff that I was just, it was just the most interesting to me.
0: Gosh, this is just so cool. D- did you feel like there were a yeah. lot of people around you that had similar mindsets to this? Or do you feel like you like read about it a lot in magazines or heard about it from your parents or where did this stuff come from? It's
1: it's weird. I feel like a big part of it for me was I don't know if you've ever heard of Sassy Magazine, but Sassy Magazine does not exist anymore, but it had its heyday in the, I got a subscription when I was very young. So I was like 13 years old and I got a subscription to Sassy. There were a lot of teen mags at the time. There was like YM and Seventeen and most of them were just the typical teen girl magazine that were very Mm -hmm. focused on beauty and you know, being skinny and boys, boys, boys. But (laughs) Sassy Mag was different. Sassy Magazine had articles about things like feminism and abortion rights and girls in bands and, you know, women in non-traditional occupations. And I remember an article about strippers and like, this was the teen magazine that I got to read and it absolutely influenced me. And it also then pointed me to my uh, music taste in like punk and riot girl. Mm. And then I was really into riot girl bands and they were just screaming and singing about all the things that I cared about. Like, yeah, rape and women and their bodies and sex and yeah, like patriarchy. And so that's, that's kind of the root, Sassy
0: Magazine. I am so impressed. I need to find it right you now. You can
1: totally, you can find it, but even better is there are a lot of archives online. And because, you know, I'm not the only one that had that experience with Sassy. It's very much like a, it's a cult classic. So there's even a book that somebody wrote about Sassy Magazine and how it changed their life. And yeah, so if you Google Sassy Magazine, you're going to find all that stuff.
0: Mm. Okay, I'm doing that literally yeah. right now.
1: It had a, a legendary issue that I got. One of my first issues had a picture of Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love on the cover, and they had like just gotten married. And that's one of the most famous Sassy magazine covers.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm writing all of this down. This is absolutely life-changing for me to hear. <laughs> You're going to
1: be excited. You're going to fall down a rabbit hole and be reading Sassy all night.
0: Was this something that was talked about a lot in your school? Like, was this common in different groups of friends or like, what did, what did that look like? (laughs) No, (laughs) let me tell you this. So I went to a super small
1: high school. There were about a hundred people in my graduating class and I was absolutely the feminist weirdo. I mean, my high school was small enough that like everyone was, we didn't have the kind of super divided clicks that you see in like movies. Um, but I was, I was like editor of the yearbook, or no, I'm sorry, editor of the paper. I was not yearbook. I was editor of the paper. And I also was just like an outspoken feminist. And I was, you know, in the honors classes and graduated number two in my class. So I was kind of just like, very good at school and very impassioned about issues that nobody else cared about in <laughs> Bellwood, Pennsylvania in 1996. You know what I mean? It was like, I had, um, I had a group of friends that were mostly, mostly guys, um, one or two, like I had always very best girlfriends, but like punk kids or weren't a lot of punks then. And so my I was like a punk girl and I had mostly punk guy friends and you know, they weren't even all at my school. So it was, I was definitely, um, Unusual. Unusual for that time and place.
0: <laughs> you seriously sound like my favorite movie <laughs> and TV show character of anything in this kind of well, film it's funny because
1: now I do see characters kind of modeled on that sort of like yeah. teenage feminist, right, girl mm-hmm. archetype. And like there was a movie um, based on, I think based on a graphic novel called Moxie.
0: Oh, the one with Amy Poehler.
1: Mm-hmm. And that, like Amy Poehler in that movie is supposed to be an old riot girl, and I'm like, yeah, that's. So when her daughter gets all her stuff out and it's like, oh, my mom was so cool. It's like I have that same stuff. Like that. That was me. That
0: that Amy Poehler character. I just don't have any kids. <laughs> yeah, no kids. Not Amy Poehler. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh wow! I just think this is so insane to think about how it wasn't something that was talked about and like. I don't know, I guess like trendy like it is today. It's something that is just so often on TV, in the media, in the news. No, And then it just sounds like it was such a new idea. It was new. I mean, and I know that
1: there were like in bigger cities, because I have a lot of friends now who were also like teenage riot girls, but they lived in DC or they lived in New York or they lived in Chicago. So they had the ability to connect with other young women um, their age and be together and like, kind of organize around that stuff. But it did feel very isolating considering where I was living at the time. And you also have to remember, this was before the internet. So the internet just kind of became a thing in the mid 90s that I actually it was probably like 1996 or something that I remember getting on the internet for the first time and like, what what we would now call Googling. <laughs> you know, and I was looking up to see if I could find other people into the same stuff I was because what we, we used to just write each other letters and find each other through um, zines and you would like buy records from record uh, catalogs and hang around record stores and hope to meet other people that were like into the same things you were into. So being into the stuff that I was at the time considering where I lived, was definitely isolating, but it would have been a lot different if I had grown up in a city.
0: Man, that's so cool to think about. Just that idea of going to try to make friends by going to like a record store or a bookstore and hanging out around a record that you really like or a book that talks about something you really care about as a way to make friends that have those same things in common with you. That's just like... (laughs) it's just so
1: cool to me. I remember I actually made a flyer and hung it up in a record store and no, was like, heck. you know, I want to start a Riot Girl chapter. Do you also care about things like racism and sexism and feminist punk rock? And like, I put that up in the local record store in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and nobody replies. <laughs> yeah, I did. You know, I do have one you know, a couple friends from back then, like you would also meet people at shows, but shows like punk shows were such a boys domain that to see other girls at punk shows was like, it was kind of scary because sometimes it felt like we were like competition or people were very, I don't know. It was, it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was kind of hard to find your people.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And I was reading some of your work and it was around this time when you started looking inwards at like your sexuality, right? I remember reading how you were realizing you weren't straight and figuring out what that was. Oh, yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh.
1: So I had an absolutely incredible boyfriend who is still a good friend of mine to this day. His name was Sean. And Sean and I met when we were around 16 years old and we were in a romantic relationship until we were like 20 And I was, I mean, we were so in love. We were best friends. Everything about our relationship was something I wish that every young person could experience as their first relationship. Like it was, we were, we were great. We were super respectful of each other. Um, Our families got along. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like a ideal teenage romance and, and we felt very safe with each other. And we also had a great sex life, like as teenagers. And I remember though, so I was like, but I think about girls a lot. And I think about girls sexually. So I knew that I wasn't straight, but I also knew I wasn't gay because I was like, but I love my boyfriend and I love having sex with him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that was the first sort of inkling when I was like, but I think about girls all the time <laughs> including when i have sex with my boyfriend <laughs>
0: that's a that's a good sign that that is something to think about <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man what was it like with friends regarding this like did you feel comfortable talking to people about it in your friend group or your family like was being queer something that was accepted um the first I remember
1: talking about it with friends and the first time that I that it really hit me is um I was watching MTV and there was a garbage video on and it was like Shirley Manson and this was probably like 1998 and I out loud said to a group of friends like I would totally have sex with her or something like that and when the words came out of my mouth I was like oh my god I can't believe I said that and I can tell you like that moment is imprinted, like whose house I was at, where I was sitting, like what was on the TV, who was in the room. And that's when I was like, I, I might not be straight. And so for the, for the rest of my, um, I don't know, it was kind of like my friends knew. And I started thinking of myself as bisexual. And by the time I was in my early twenties, I was having sexual relationships with girls and but I was still thinking of myself as I'm bisexual um, and I'd never dated a girl, but I didn't tell my family until I got a girlfriend. Like I was in a serious relationship with a woman. And so I was just that, then I came out to them by being like, I have a girlfriend. It wasn't that I was ashamed of it. It wasn't that I was hiding it, but I mean, also this was early two thousands and even the way queerness is so visible now, it it wasn't at that time. So it still would have felt like a, like, uh, do I really want to tell my parents that I'm bi because I like make out with girls at parties. It just didn't feel like enough of a thing for me to have to talk about it. And I was always dating cis men and I liked cis men. Like I wasn't fake, I wasn't fake dating them. I was like genuinely having good relationships and good sex with them too. So it was easy to just be like, everyone assumes I'm straight. My friends know I'm not straight. Even my boyfriends knew like the boyfriends I had in college and after right after college, they knew that I wasn't straight and I would be upfront about that. Yeah. Um, so when I did come out to my family, I was in my mid-twenties and yeah, so that's, that's, that's that timeline.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Did you feel like you were able to find a good community of other queer folks that you could connect with and help just understand each other and feel understood?
1: It was weird because I felt, I, I felt unwelcome by lesbians. And there were actually times in college where I like tried to hang out with lesbians and they would assume I was one of them until I said that I was bisexual. And like the disappointment was palpable. Um, The kind of like dismissiveness, the, the outright dismissiveness and that was a bummer. And so I feel like I struggled with the queer imposter syndrome until I got a girlfriend. And then I was like, well, now everyone can see that I'm like in a, in a lesbian relationship. Um, and then I didn't feel that imposter syndrome anymore. And, but like the homophobia, it wasn't coming from my family. It was more just like, the culture didn't know and still to some extent doesn't know what to do with people that are like super bisexual. (laughs) And that's how I would describe myself. I mean, I use the identity label queer, but underneath that, like I'm attracted to people with genders like mine and people with genders unlike mine. And now I'm comfortable with it. And I am like super, like I don't give a shit what anyone else has to think about it, but it was weird because at the time, like, even friends of mine would, would be like, wait, but you have a girlfriend. Um, are you Are you just gay now? And then after I dated that woman, I dated a guy for a while. And then people were like, but are you not gay anymore? And just, it's like people couldn't conceptualize queerness that wasn't just gay. And there was a movie that came out that At the time, it was a really big deal. It was called Chasing Amy. And the movie was, I don't know, late 90s, Kevin Smith movie, Kevin Smith, who did clerks and mall rats and all that. And it was a movie about a bisexual woman. And in the movie, she dates Ben Affleck. (laughs) And it's a throwback. Um, She always thought she was a lesbian. And then she meets Ben Affleck and falls in love. And she's like, what the hell? I thought I was gay. And then her lesbian friends like abandon her. And then Ben Affleck is really weird about the fact that she used to identify as a lesbian and she has this like meltdown in the middle of the film. And she says something that like still sticks with me where she was like, some people have a roadmap that directs them directly to point A or point B. And I didn't have that map. So I tried everything. And I, you know, I, I've used that quote in my teaching before. And, you know, if you watch Chasing Amy now from a lens, you're going to be like, whoa, this movie is so problematic. So if you watch anything exactly, you're going to be like, wow, that's offensive. (laughs) But like understanding the time and place for me, it felt like this is the first queer woman, bisexual woman I've seen on screen that. Like, I I felt like, oh, my God. Like, it's not just me who wants to date all kinds of different people and is comfortable dating all kinds of different people and is, like, very sexually interested in multiple genders.
0: Okay, I need to go find this movie and watch it right now. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to essentially delve into my
1: past. Like, if you read Sassy Magazine, um, watch Chasing Amy...
0: Oh, I'm going to look up some skinny, skinny 90s models. Oh, my <laughs> you know? gosh. Oh, totally. <laughs> that just makes me feel sick thinking about that. But you seriously <laughs> sound like one of the coolest people ever. Oh. <laughs> so tell me your time at. Penn State in college. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading about how that was when your interest about feminism like really skyrocketed during your women's studies. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Um,
1: I was friends with and classmates with a lot of other like cool feminist women. And it was the first time that I had a bunch of people like that in my life. Because like I said, I grew up in a very small town and I, I was the only person that I felt the only person that was really into that stuff where I was. And so when I got to college, it was like, oh, these are other, for the most part, girls, but not always, like other girls and women that are also like really feminist and have these like pro-choice politics and they're very sex positive. And so it was so cool to have those people around me and meet those friends, some of whom are still like very close friends in my life. Oh, yeah. And... We did a lot of activism and organizing, and I think what i what I learned that was most important wasn't stuff I learned in classes, but lessons about how people react to women confidently talking about sex, and also how people um, perpetuate and uphold rape culture continually because we're still screaming about the same stuff we were screaming about back then. Um, You know, like one of the things, one of the probably biggest college experiences for me is that my friends and I who were in this like feminist group in, in school, um, we were at Penn State University and we put together an event called Sex Fair. And this was supposed to be an educational event about sexuality that we knew that the feminist reputation is like, oh, feminists only talk about sexual assault. And we were like, no, actually, that's not true. We want to teach people about their bodies. And we want to talk about sexuality as a pleasurable experience and as an empowering thing. So we had an event um, that was a very small, modest event where we did, you know, some sex ed workshops and had some like catalogs of sex toys. And awesome. it was pretty chill. Yeah. And then we did it again the following year. And what happened that year, it was the fall of 2000, the um, people, conservative people somehow got wind of the fact that Penn State University students were putting on a sex ed event. Oh my God. And it caused this major uproar in the community. And in actually the whole, <laughs> this ended up becoming national news. No way. Penn State feminists are disgusting and immoral. And, you know, we we had activities like um, pin the clitoris on the vulva. Sure. We had something called orgasm bingo, where (laughs) when you like got bingo, you had to like fake an orgasm. Oh, yeah. We had had sex toy catalogs. We had lube samples. um, We had activities where you could learn about consent. We had anatomically correct gingerbread people. It was like. It was chill and fun. And we also didn't use university money to do this. Like we used university space, but it was like such a cheap event that like a couple people pulled it together with like $50. Like it was not a big deal. Oh yeah. Um, but when certain alumni heard about it, The fact that it was even happening became this like big news story. And a state representative from Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, brought a camera crew to film us doing our event. And he got in our faces and was asking all these questions. And then he made a movie of him being (gasps) like morally outraged and took it to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and tried to get Penn State's funding cut. Oh my god, you've got to be kidding me. And it me. became national news. It was on Fox News. Um, yes. I don't know if you know who Dr. Laura Schlesinger is. Dr. No. Laura, she was like a big conservative pundit at the time. Um she she's, you know, she's kind of like the Ann Coulter of yesteryear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the Laura the Laura Ingram of yesteryear. There you but go. she had right, she's blonde, you know, you can picture it. I had
0: a <laughs> feeling she was blonde. <laughs>
1: So, like, on Dr. Laura's show, she called Penn State the best little whorehouse in the East because of that event we put on. Oh, my God. Wow. My roommate, who was the president of our women's uh, feminist organization, she was on the O'Reilly Factor with Bill O'Reilly. I remember um, we were written up in the journal or the Chronicle of Higher Education. If you Google, you can still find these articles. I can send them to you because I actually just sent them. I sent them to someone else recently who was asking me about this, but like it was looking back. That's the lesson I learned is like this caused such an uproar and the same stuff is being repeated today oh with God. the like moral panic around sex education. That's and crazy. the same people, you know, it's different faces, but it's the same dynamic, like conservatives and religious rights modern times are still freaking out about people talking about sex in a shame-free comprehensive way. And they think it's so harmful and they want everyone to get riled up about it. And I mean, this, this state representative, his hysteria kind of didn't go anywhere because our university president totally backed us up.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, That's awesome. That
1: same president would later resign in disgrace over the Jerry Sandusky scandal. But at the time, (laughs) he, you know, he backed, he backed us up. Um, The other state representatives were just like, I don't understand why this is such a big deal. But it was, it was wild to see like how upset and freaked out and absolutely um just unhinged people became about our little event
0: that is absolutely insane i cannot believe it made national news this sounds like a movie it could be (laughs) absolutely one i would (laughs) definitely watch Wow, I can only imagine the things that you learned just from this experience alone, dealing with these state representatives and the news and the people and hearing all that you did. That's so much. It was educational. It was much that
1: experience I learned so much from. Yeah. um, And way more than than just like classroom learning.
0: Oh, my God. I bet that's like that's a life changing experience. Man, so so what happened next? What happened in your life after college? So after college, I started working in abortion care,
1: and I did that for a little bit, and then I got um, a job teaching sex ed with juvenile delinquents in a juvenile justice center, and that's what I did for a really long time, but that's not so much body related to me. Um, It was, you know, at some point during that time that I started changing my relationship to my own body. And thinking of it as, like, something that I didn't just need to try to make small, but that I could, like, make strong.
0: Oh, man, I love that. I love that so much. And that's such an important thing for me to hear right now. So tell me what it was like working in the abortion clinics. What what was that like?
1: Yeah, I worked. Um, it wasn't even a very long time, but it was a, around a year. I worked. Um, doing counseling and uh, like holding patients' hands through the procedures and doing all kinds of office stuff in in abortion clinics in Pennsylvania. I mean, I learned so much from it that I was just talking on a different podcast last week, actually, about my time in abortion care and all of the things that I saw because we were talking about like, what happens if Roe gets overturned? And yeah, that clinic, the, the days that I spent in um, abortion care were very, very transformative for me.
0: Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I know what post you're talking about. I was one of the ones that stuck it out. about
1: all the different kinds of people that come in for, for procedures, like yeah. the vast array of people? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read that one, and that really stuck with me. I think I shared it out, actually.
1: <laughs> you might have. It
0: was a very, very well-shared post. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially right now, given what's happening, I think that things like that just need to be heard. So what was your relationship like with your body during this time and after? What did that look like? So um,
1: I went to graduate school while working full time, and it was extremely stressful. If anyone has done that, they know. And when I was finished with my degree, I I felt like I needed to move my body. I had not moved my body in a long time. All I did was like, go to work, go to school, write papers. And I realized that I felt, I felt terrible. I felt physically bad. And I also realized that I felt like I was good at school. School wasn't hard, um, but I'd never done anything athletic. And I wanted to see if, if I could use my body in ways that felt good to me. And that's when I started to, um, first I tried running and I realized like, okay, I can run, but it doesn't come easy to me. I don't have the like natural gift for it or the like build for it that makes it easy. Um, I was like a slow runner. And what I came to figure out was that I am very well suited for lifting weights. And I got into kettlebell training and powerlifting and strongman, And it was like, It was like, I felt like I discovered what my body was naturally designed to do.
0: Oh my gosh. I can't tell you how healing that is specifically for me and my story. I have a bit of a history of trying to force my body to do different exercises and movements and whatnot Mm -hmm. uh, to try to be a certain size. And that's just so cool that you decided you wanted to listen to your body and figure out what it was your body felt good doing. I think
1: there's a fantastic photo somewhere of different Olympic athletes and their bodies and what sports they do. And you can just see by looking at them, like this person here is built for swimming. This person here is built for weightlifting. This person is built to be a gymnast. And it was like that kind of thing. Like my partner, my husband and his whole family, they are like gifted endurance athletes. They run, um, they like run marathons and ultra marathons. And that is just not my body. Um I'm much more suited to like put heavy things up above my head and yank heavy things off the floor. It's like lower half muscle mass. Um yeah, that was it was so cool discovering that my body was good at those things and like I felt like it was I was built for it and doing that was so different than trying to be small.
0: Man, what a cool feeling and such an inspiring story. I love that. There's so much more, so, yeah. so much more in the world than being small. Totally. And it's just, it's so cool that you decided to listen to that. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned earlier before we started recording about being hit by a truck as a pedestrian.
1: Oh, I did. <laughs> I was a pedestrian. Yeah, no, <laughs> I was, I was hit by a pickup truck as a pedestrian when I was, Uh, crossing the street. And I was, you know, just walking through a crosswalk on the cross signal and a truck turned into the crosswalk. And I flipped up onto the hood of the car or onto the hood of the truck and bounced off of it and landed on the trolley tracks in West Philadelphia. And I was conscious. I never hit my head. I never lost consciousness. I was very lucky. I was also very lucky that it was January. So I was like fully dressed, bundled up in like thick clothing. Um, But I did go to the emergency room trauma center and I walked out on my own two feet after a day. Um, I didn't even have to stay there. But what, what happened is that it came to light that I had a couple torn ligaments in my knee. So I had a ACL and MCL torn completely and I had to have surgery to repair them. And that was, you know, in the middle of when I was very, very committed to lifting weights and working out a lot and being super strong. And so I had to, it was it was humbling.
0: <laughs> Man, that is so sad and sounds like it must have felt so lonely and strange. It did. Um, It was hard.
1: I still was like very involved in my gym community because at that point it was like, I could go there when I was healing and I could do light things and I could like work on the rowing machine. I just couldn't move like really heavy weight. It was, it was something that I had to ease back into and the identity crisis came later when I sort of quit lifting altogether only because I just was bored of it. And I, I last did like a serious competition, um, It was Memorial Day weekend, which just passed. It was Memorial Day weekend like seven years ago or seven. Yeah, seven years ago. Um, And I'm over the identity crisis part, but I definitely just lost my passion for lifting. And for a while, it was it felt weird because I had been so into it that that did feel like a huge part of who I was. Like, it was like my heart wasn't in it. And I was like, Ugh, I would rather be anywhere but here. And why am I doing this is if it's not fun, if it doesn't feel good? Because for years, it was so fun and it felt great. And I was so into it. And then I was like, there's no reason to force yourself. Like, just why? What is the purpose? And it's funny that we're talking about this because just yesterday, I was like, I kind of want to pick up some kettlebells again. But I don't know. I might. I might not. Um, but I know that forcing it is not smart. And what I do now is I'm very into taking long, long walks every day. Um, you know, I have dogs. I like to walk them as much as possible, and just walk lots of different places by myself. And that is what makes me happy. That like feels good to my brain, and I'm very enthusiastic about it. And maybe there will come a time when something else comes into fashion for me but i like just kind of going with what truly feels enjoyable.
0: That is so helpful for me to hear. Good. I mean like like i said earlier i in the past have struggled a lot with trying to force my body to do different things regardless of how it felt. And mm-hmm. and in treatment, I was in treatment for an eating disorder a couple years ago. a big conversation that I was having with my dietitian yeah. uh, was about why I was moving, why I was exercising, like how to find what kind of movement felt good because that's the whole point of movement, of exercise of sports, anything is to have fun. like if not, what are you trying to do to your body why like, It felt a lot more like punishment at times or just manipulation. And I've just got to tell you, hearing your story with that and just how you were so dedicated to taking care of yourself and finding something that felt good and that felt enjoyable. It's just Mm -hmm. it's so good to hear.
1: I'm glad that's helpful for you. I mean, it was something that I had to learn and kind of push through is being like, you don't have to feel like you were doing something really strenuous. You don't have to feel like this workout makes you want to die. You don't have to feel like you pushed yourself. Like, just move. And it like, that can feel great. And so for me, sometimes it's like walking my dogs while listening to podcasts. And that feels awesome. And why do it if it doesn't feel awesome?
0: Gosh, I love that. Exactly. Why do it if it doesn't feel awesome? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, I just, I want to be your friend. Can we please be friends and hang out and walk our dogs and listen to podcasts I mean seriously if you are ever in St. Louis this part of the country then let's hang out (laughs) and I'd be happy to awesome I have so many ideas for all the new things we're gonna do
1: I do have a bestie there um, that I need to visit because it's been
0: long overdue. So it might, I mean, I really might take you up on that. That's amazing. Let's do it. Wait, so tell me more about what you're doing right now with the Purity Culture Dropout and your business, all the things. I think that it is so cool how you are so passionate about being a sex educator. Tell us more about that.
1: Sure. Um, so I currently do um, sex education for anyone who wants to hire me for it, which means that you can find me um, on Instagram or on my website, purityculturedropout.com. And people hire me to do things like individualized sex education and coaching sessions on a whole variety of topics. And also sometimes people um, choose to participate in a more long-term a structured relationship where we do six to 10 sessions intentionally working on the purity culture recovery stuff, learning all of the things that you want to know, talking about how it impacts your life, talking about the experiences you've had in the past, and giving you all of the sex education tools, information, and um, like, Yeah, just like the education that you can actually take and use in your life going forward. Um, So that is that is how I work with people now. And I also um, I am going to teach a class. I do uh, I do webinars sometimes. So that's like a much less, um, you know, direct contact. But it's like you you just log on to a class and I'm going to be teaching one on sexual communication soon.
0: Oh, I love that. I can't wait to learn more and just explore more of what you're doing, especially at the topic of of sexual communication. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I think that that is such an important topic, and I'm so happy that you're putting content like this out in the world. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Sexual communication has been such a big game changer for me and my my fiancé, Uh, It was not something that I had ever experienced before being with her. And it just changes everything. And so I just, I'm happy that you're spreading that knowledge and wisdom because I just think it should be shouted from the rooftops. Are you able to share any, like, Mm -hmm. little preview or uh, kind of synopsis of what it is that you're going to be talking about regarding all of this? Oh, yeah.
1: Um, This will definitely be... like like a synopsis of what I talk about in the class coming up is that our idea that sex is just going to be something that organically happens between people and is perfectly choreographed and we don't have to talk about it um, is is very misleading. In reality, um, nobody is a mind reader. Your partner is not going to know how you feel, what you like, what you dislike, what you're curious about, what you Um, have boundaries around if you don't speak up. And they're also not going to know what you enjoy and what feels good to you if you don't speak up. And, you know, that goes both ways. It um, involves learning how to talk to a partner about sex. There's kind of a before, during, and after. So before you are going to have a sexual experience with someone, figure out um, what consent sounds like and looks like for you. Figure out how to have a conversation with them about STIs, um, protection, birth control, if that's applicable, things like um, where is this going to happen? And have you been tested? And what are your limits? Like, are you comfortable with this? Are you not comfortable with this? So there's like the pre sex communication. And then during, um, we absolutely have to communicate affirmation like, yes, that feels good. No, it doesn't. Can you try this? Can we stop? And then afterwards, it's also important to gather information about how you both feel like, are you, was that okay? Um, Is there something you want to try differently next time? And, you know, is there anything we need to talk about? There's, there's just different parts of sex that require different things. And there's, you know, if you don't know this stuff, that's not weird. Nobody teaches us this. Even good sex education doesn't often involve how to have a conversation. So it's not something you would have learned in school and it's not something that we're born knowing how to do, but it is a skill that you can acquire.
0: Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. I want to, I want to go to this webinar. Uh, What are the steps to get there? Like how, how can we find it?
1: Yeah, I'm going to be doing, um, it's going to be a live webinar that happens on June. Let me see here. Sunday. A live webinar that happens on Sunday, June 12th at 6 p.m. Eastern time. So if you go to purityculturedropout.com, you can find the link to register for the class.
0: Amazing. I will go ahead and put a link in the description box below for this for anybody else who is interested. Yeah.
1: Happy to. I mean, it's it's something I love talking about. And again, nobody teaches us this stuff. So there's there's a lot to learn.
0: Oh, yeah. I have very, very few memories of anything accurate when it comes to learning about sex ed when I was <laughs> growing up. Oh, my gosh. Erica, I have one last question for you, if that is OK. Of course. Now, I kind of forgot that I had to do this because I had (laughs) so much fun talking with you that I actually almost forgot about asking this part. But, Erica, would you rather... Oh, boy. (laughs) Would you rather have a whole entire career being a saleswoman of hats... Okay. Hats that aren't just normal hats. Now, these hats, uh, they change regularly. They become different types of animals on top of people's heads. hmm Yeah, and the different types of animals kind of can befriend the person. Okay. They don't weigh more than a normal hat, but it's kind of like this person's mm-hmm. friend. So fashion's not really a concern, it's more so here, buy this cool baseball hat, but it's gonna turn into an iguana once in a while. So this business is kind of successful, kind of not. It's kind of just like, you know, sometimes it's paycheck to paycheck, sometimes you get to buy the expensive, fancy peanut butter from the store instead of the $1.99 one, that whole kind of thing. Or would you rather have your dogs your dogs be secretly actors. Secretly actors as every dog in every movie ever made. Or every TV show. I'm talking Airbud, I'm talking Benji, Beethoven, all of them. The dogs they can play. Any kind of dog. Now, they're very they're very snooty about this because they're very successful. But they're still your dogs and you get to know that your dogs are famous. They just... They've got some attitudes. Oh, my
1: gosh. Oh, my gosh. (sighs) Those are amazing. Um, I feel (laughs) like I'd just rather have my dogs be famous um, because my dogs are great and they are a gift to me. And I feel like other people would (laughs) benefit from knowing my dogs, too.
0: Absolutely.
1: And then my dogs would kind of become my career, you know, Then I would just... They would become my career. Oh, I didn't even
0: think about that. That's, that's a good point. You found the loophole. Yeah. Yeah. Get rich and get famous dogs. Forget the hats. oh my gosh normally i have somewhat of an idea of what i'm gonna ask but i was totally just winging this it was fun to like listen to you conjure that up out of your brain oh good i'm happy that that was enjoyable for you i was (laughs) just looking all over my room trying to find something anywhere that might work you're that meme of the lady thinking really hard about equations oh yeah that was me that's actually exactly Mm -hmm. what i was just picturing in my mind oh my gosh (laughs) well Erica, where can people find you on the internet? I know you've shared a couple places already, but just to have it all at the end here, where do we go? They can find me um, mostly on Instagram at
1: ericasmith.sex.ed and also my website purityculturedropout.com. But Instagram is where I'm the most active. Um, I do lots of story posts and interacting with people and that's sort of the, the, the like... The central hub of my work
0: amazing you gotta love instagram people definitely go follow her there i've been following her for a hot minute and it has been really cool to see the kind of stuff that she shares
1: yes and i will send you the um (laughs) the articles about my
0: college scandal oh please do i'm so excited i can't wait to do all the digging in there Man, Erica, this has been so much fun. You have been such a lovely guest today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. This was just so much fun. And if you are ever, I say again, in St. Louis, please let me know. And we will just hang out with our dogs at the park and have a great old time. Oh, my gosh. I want to meet and touch and
1: pet all your dogs for sure. <laughs> oh,
0: they, I just got a big nod in agreement from all of them we're in sounds great that's wonderful <laughs> to hear erica you have a wonderful rest of your day and i'll talk to you again thank you uh enjoy your day as well you too bye bye. thank you so much for listening to this episode of the unity project podcast if you enjoyed and want to hear more please do subscribe to this podcast share it with your friends share it with your mom share it with your dog all the people and animals share this with them. And go ahead and follow me on Instagram at JackieG.TV to keep up with updates. If you want to support this podcast and get more involved in it, then go to Patreon.com slash JackieGTV. Uh, All these links will be in the description box below. I'll see you next time.